morning, Bethel. Good morning. Glad to see all of you this morning. How many of you all have a store that you just despise going into, but your spouse or your kids are insistent on you going into that store? Anyone have a store like that? Yeah. You know what my store is? Ikea. Yeah, I, I just like I get an instant headache when I walk into that store and I like I feel like I've like worked like an eight hour day after I walk out of there. I'm like so tired. And the only thing good about Ikea is the Swedish meatballs. That's like my my treat for getting through Ikea and the smell of the cinnamon rolls. After about the second or third bite of the cinnamon roll, you're just like, hey, why did I buy this? This isn't as good as what it smells. Um, but those, yeah, that's, that's me. Do you know why I hate Ikea so much? It's because I know that when I go to Ikea, my weekend plans are done. They're drastically changed. No gator game, no hanging out with the kids. After a, a trip to Ikea, I have a pile of brown boxes that I have to turn into furniture. That's what I know is happening. You know, you know something pretty cool about the Ikea Ruined Weekend is when it's done. When it's done, when those brown boxes are turned into furniture, there's no task that provides more of a sense of accomplishment than sitting over a piece of furniture with a weird Swedish name, whatever they call it, Gundala or whatever piece of furniture they're going to call it, and declaring, it's done. It's finished. I can do what I want to now. I no longer have to put that furniture together. Over the last several weeks, we have looked at the last words of Jesus from the cross. If you've missed any of those messages, you can go back on our podcast and you can listen to them there. Today, we're going to look at probably his most famous words as he hung on the cross over 2,000 years ago. And we're going to consider the meaning and significance of this phrase. Really, it was one word in the Greek, but we have it as three words in our English language, and that is, it is finished. It is finished. Those are the last words that Jesus uttered hanging on the cross. What does this word mean? What did Jesus mean when he uttered these last words on the cross. This word, it means complete, perfected, fully satisfied. And the job for you and I today is to do our best to try to unpack what Jesus meant when he said, it is finished. Our goal will be as we finish our time together today is to answer this question. What was Jesus saying? What was Jesus completing, or what did he perfect, or what was satisfied with his death upon a cross? So our text today will be in John chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This was from the Apostle John, who was there at the foot of the cross, watching his Lord and his Savior. We have a first-hand account of Jesus' death upon a cross. 
We'll look at, first of all, this morning, we're going to look at several things that Jesus completed. And the first is, it is finished. Jesus was proclaiming that his work on this earth was now finally, completely done. The Bible shows us that Jesus, now knowing all was complete, he said to the Lord, Tetelestai. That is the Greek word that was used that came out of the mouth of Jesus. It is finished. It is complete. And this word tetelestai was used in several different ways during the ancient times. The first way it was used was a merchant would place a stamp upon a piece of paper that essentially means the debt has been paid in full. It is complete. You owe me nothing more. It was a, an act of transaction, testelestai, it's done, it's paid for. Another way is that when someone would bring a sacrificial lamb in the old uh, Judaic sacrificial system, or an animal before the priest who would inspect the animal to see if it was worthy of sacrifice, if the animal didn't have a spot or blemish, the priest would say, testelestai, this animal is worthy to be sacrificed. It is perfect. Jesus on the cross, knowing all had been completed, he said to Telestai. What was finished? What did he complete on the cross? The perfect work of Jesus is what was finished. The servant returning to the master and saying to God the Father, I have completed everything that you sent me to this earth to do. It is finished. Jesus is saying, now the debt has been paid in full. There is nothing left. Your sin has been paid for by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. To tell us, die. And as you consider the fact that Jesus had finished the job given to him by the Father to do, it becomes crystal clear that the key mark is that Jesus' obedience to the Father obeying the Father all the way to death on a cross. A lot of times we obey someone or a command of God's for all the wrong reasons. We can learn from the obedience of Jesus to the Father. It says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross and obedience to the father jesus left the glory of heaven to come to this earth be born as a small helpless baby in a manger to live with as a poor individual as a carpenter he lived the perfect life and according to the plan of the Father, fashioned before the foundation of the world, Jesus left heaven, came to this earth to do the Father's will, even at the age of 12. Mary finds Jesus in the temple, talking in just utterly in amazement, all of the scholars around him, telling, teaching them. Just think about these, these people who had studied the scriptures for years. And here you have this 12-year-old boy that was just confounding them. And Mary looks at Jesus and, and, you know, and kind of disheveled because she couldn't find him. And eventually she found him in the temple. And he says, 
don't you realize that I'm about my father's business? He understood even as a 12-year-old boy, the obedience of Jesus was complete, and he stands as an example of how we are to be obedient. To Jesus, a mission was given, and that mission was that he was to come and die. Jesus has also given us a mission as well. He completed his mission, and he didn't just leave us here to just wander about the earth, not knowing what we're to do as he was leaving this earth. He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is our mission that we are here to do. You know, one of the interesting things that I've been a part of here over the last six, seven weeks is the company that I work for has been really pushing us to write our own personal mission statement. You know, what is it that you're going to live your life by? You know, the, my company is very big on purpose, very purpose-driven company. What is your purpose in life? We have our purpose statement. And so I just kind of, kind of ripped off our statement from, from Bethel. We exist, I exist, to love and lead one another to find and follow Jesus. And, you know, kind of talking through that and having that opportunity to talk about that in a corporate setting is quite unique. But thinking through our mission, our mission in life that God gave to us. If we're all honest, we would often have to confess that we have mission statements that maybe we don't vocally say them like this, but by the way we live our lives, our mission statements are more like, my mission is pursue pleasure at all costs. Or it might be to get as rich as I possibly can and just consume all of that for me. Another one might be my career. My mission statement is my family. And sometimes these mission statements aren't necessarily bad things. These aren't bad things, you know, to want to be around your family. But is that what Jesus gave to us as a mission statement as he was leaving this earth. Just before his arrest, Jesus spent time in prayer in John 17, 4. And in anticipation of his death, Jesus prayed, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you sent me to do. He completed that work. What about us? Are we intentionally being obedient to the mission that God has given each and every Christian on this earth? Are we living our lives that way? So first of all, we see that in his finish, Jesus was proclaiming that his work here was now done. It is finished. Jesus was proclaiming that the sufferings were over. You know, one of the things I love about reading the Bible is all of the prophecies of the Old Testament that were written hundreds of years before Jesus that came true in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In Isaiah 53, Jesus, it says, Man of sorrows, we sang that song this morning, Man of sorrows, acquainted with suffering and shame. You know, the climax of Jesus' suffering was upon the cross as he hung there on that cross bearing the suffering for my sin and for your sin. And yet upon taking our sin and God's punishment for us, his suffering 
came to an end. His suffering ended by his death upon the cross. God's demands for justice and punishment for sin were satisfied. So it is finished. Jesus was proclaiming that the sufferings were over. What else does it is finished mean? It means the time Jesus' death was of his own will. It was of his own will that he went to the cross. John chapter 10, verse 17, it says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. He was telling them before. The disciples didn't catch it. It's not the Romans that are going to crucify me. I'm laying it down. They could not do it if I would not allow them. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. The charge I received from my father. There's the, the great songwriter that says he could have called 10,000 angels at that moment to take him off the cross, but he did not do that. Why? Because he suffered there for your sins and for my sins to testelestai, to pay the debt that we owed God the Father. When Jesus called out, it was finished. That was him willingly giving up his spirit. As some say in life, it is not over until I say it's over. That is in essence what Jesus was saying here in this verse. Number four, he said it is finished. It is a word of triumph spoken out against Satan. By his death, Satan and death were defeated. For in Christ, one comes to life and death is not the end. That's one of the greatest things about Christianity is we know that when we pass from this life, it's not the end. We will live forever with Christ in heaven when we pass from this life. Genesis 15 anticipates all the way back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve already foreshadowing the defeat of Satan. Satan, death, and hell will be defeated. Because of Satan, sin and death entered into our world. Death comes to all men because of sin. I said last week, we have all been infected with this terrible, terrible virus. It's called sin. And because of sin, our bodies are continually, from the point that we were born, decaying and getting weaker. And eventually we will return to the dust of the ground. But we have a cure for our sin, and his name is Jesus. Jesus. Jesus' physical death is not the end, for Jesus is the giver of eternal life. By Jesus' death upon the cross, Satan became a vanquished foe. No longer is there reason to fear death, but only for the Christian, for by Christ's work has been applied to us, we have life. As believers, we don't have to fear death. We don't. And one of the saddest things for me is to do a funeral as a minister of someone who did not know Jesus. The, the mood, the tone of that funeral is so much different than someone 
who knows Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Because we know that someone who knows Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that one day they will live, we will meet up again together. It's not goodbye, it's I'll see you again soon. I'll see you again soon. When Satan is indeed our enemy, he has been defeated. And for us who are followers of Jesus, he is no longer our master. Satan is a defeated foe, and he is waiting for the final day of judgment when he and all of his fallen angels and demons and all other God-haters will be cast to the place that was created for them, which is hell. Because of the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, we have, as James says, the ability to resist the devil. Resist the devil and flee, and he will flee from you. He has been defeated and has no rightful claim upon those who call themselves followers of Jesus. Man, doesn't that give us encouragement this morning to think about that? Just think about this awful, wicked world that we live in. So, it is finished as a word of triumph spoken out against Satan. Number five, it is finished. Jesus is declaring that he has completely fulfilled the law's requirements. Do you know what God's law demands? It demands perfection. Is anybody in here perfect? I don't think there is. I don't, I've never met a perfect person. Why? Because we are all infected with that virus I told you about earlier. <laughs> We're all infected with sin. We're all sinners. If you've ever seen me at a sporting event, you'll know that I'm a sinner. <laughs> I'll admit it right now. It's, if you've ever seen me whenever one of my child children disobey, yeah, yeah the, the nasty side of Pastor Robert comes out. We're all sinners. There is no one that can perfectly keep the law. The Jews tried, and yet what does the Bible say? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But here's the thing about Jesus. When Jesus came to this earth, he perfectly fulfilled the law. From the moment he was born in a manger in Bethlehem, the moment he said, it is finished, he lived the perfect life that you and I should have lived, being the perfect sacrifice once and for all for the sins of all mankind, past, present, and future. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them in the life and in his death, Jesus did exactly that. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. He was sinless, and this made him to be qualified to die as a sacrifice for our sins. Of ourselves, we cannot perfectly keep God's law, and because of this comes the righteous judgment of God. But something amazing happens when a person turns from their sin, and they ask Jesus, to be their Lord and Savior. When we come to faith in Jesus, asking him to be our Savior, the Bible says in Romans 8, 4, it indicates that because we are in Christ, we are viewed as fully meeting the requirements of the law. Here's the beautiful thing. When God looks at us after we have accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, he no longer sees our sin. God's over here 
we're over here, Jesus is standing here. When God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. As he looks at us, when we are in Christ, when we are in Christ, he does not see our sin. He sees the wonderful righteousness of Christ. Why? Because at the death upon a cross, when it is finished, Christ took our sin upon himself and he gave us his righteousness. It's called the great exchange. It's the greatest exchange on our behalf that we could ever imagine. That we could be found sinless and righteous in the sight of God. Not because of anything that we have done. Because we've done nothing. We're worthless, wretched sinners. But for Christ and what he did for us upon the cross. Colossians 2.13 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and sin. That's us. When given the choice for sin, we take it every time without Christ and uncircumcised in your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Thus, this he set aside nailing it to the cross. You know what Paul is saying here? He's saying, Tetelestai, when Christ screamed Tetelestai, that record of debt that was insurmountable that we could never repay, Christ nailed it to the cross. And when he said Tetelestai, it is paid. Man. By his death, the righteous demands of the law that we could not meet, he met for us. By his perfectly keeping all the requirements of the law, he showed himself qualified to be our Savior. When we come to Jesus, we are viewed as perfect and righteous because we're in Christ. When we sing of Christ and what he's done for us, remember that. Allow the tone and the voice to flow out of your mouth when we sing praises to our God, knowing what he has done for us. It is finished. Number six, so the sacrificial system was at end. Some people ask me, you know, why don't we offer sacrifices like they did in the Old Testament? Here's why. This is why we don't do that. This is why that, that Christians today don't offer sacrifices like the Jews did in the Old Testament. It is because Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system for us with his death upon a cross. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, animals had been sacrificed by priests for the sins of people. The Old Testament sacrificial system anticipated by its sacrifices the sacrifice of the one for whom all sacrifice by which sins could be truly and completely atoned for. The writer of Hebrews talks about this for us and sometimes people get tripped up here. 
There are people who would call themselves a Christian, but they still feel this need to follow these Old Testament rituals or laws. The, the writer of Hebrews tells us this. He says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. He says the sacrificial system is insufficient. It can't do it. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any conscience of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. While the death and shed blood of animals was not sufficient for a permanent cleansing of the Old Testament era, the shed blood of Jesus was sufficient for he is the Son of God sent to die for our sins. So why did Hebrews just tell us on that last verse why we don't offer animal sacrifices? Because Jesus was sufficient. No more needed because his death upon a cross took care of the sin past, present, and future. The whole sacrificial system was pointing to the coming of Jesus, pointing forward to the coming of Jesus. Jesus died as the perfect and spotless sacrifice. Not only did the Old Testament sacrificial system point toward the coming of the one who would act as our Savior, but there's so many other pictures in the Old Testament that point to this. As you read through the stories of the Passover lamb, the bronze snake, the deliverance of Noah, Rahab and the scarlet cord at Jericho's window, the account of Abraham being told to sacrifice his beloved son Isaac, all of these things point to the better and perfect sacrifice that was coming in Jesus. This entire book, from cover to cover, is all about Christ. The Old Testament pointing forward to the coming of Christ. And the Gospels talking about the life of Christ. And then the, after the Gospels in the New Testament, Paul's writing talking about the future coming of Christ. It's all about Jesus. Jesus perfectly fit the bill. When he died, all such things anticipated were fulfilled. And the last one, it is finished. It is all that needed to be done to make our salvation has been done. It has been done. The question one might ask is, are you trying to add something to your salvation that you might think would merit God's favor? So many times we like to think when it comes to salvation, there's something I have to do. There's something that, you know, I feel like I have to contribute to my own salvation. There's something that I have to keep these rules. I have to be a good person. I have to do all of these things to try to obtain salvation. And that's not what God says. Let me illustrate it this way for you. There was a story of an old farmer who was deeply concerned about his friend, the carpenter, who had this thought, who had this same belief that, you know, Jesus, what Jesus did was just good, but you know, I've got to do my part as well to obtain salvation. So he said, let me illustrate it to my carpenter friend this way. And the farmer friend ordered a gate. He needed a gate for his barn, for his animals. 
And so he ordered the gate, his carpenter friend made the gate for him, and he got the, the gate installed there in his barn for his animals and invited his carpenter friend over to see the completed project and see you know, how well the gate fit in the stall and everything. And as his carpenter friend walked in the barn, he's standing there with an ax, and which kind of puzzled his carpenter friend just a little bit. And he goes, what are you going to do with that? And he goes, I'm going to make a few cuts and strokes here to your gate to kind of add to your work. And the carpenter's like, no, no, no. It's perfect. Look at it. It fits right there, right in the stall. It opens real nice, and there's nothing that you need to, to do to that gate. What are you talking about? Why do you have that axe in your hand? You're, you're talking silliness there. And the farmer took his axe, and he began to hack and slash at that gate until it was completely useless. And the carpenter said, look what you've done. You've ruined my work. Why did you do that? And the farmer said, this is exactly what you're doing when it comes to Christ. You think that you can add to your salvation by whatever you think you need to add to it with. And Christ, when he was on the cross, he said, it is finished. It's done. There's nothing you or I can do to add to it. There's nothing we need to do because Christ's work, it is finished. Jesus' death was once and for all. There is no more need for a sacrifice for sins. There's one work that we must do to be saved. John 6, 28 says, Then they asked him, What, will we, what must we do to the works of that God requires. And Jesus answered them and said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus says, All you have to do is believe. That's it. And that seems so simple, and it seems like, oh, and it fights against our human nature to think that some that God would be so giving to us and that there would be nothing re required from us besides belief in him. Jesus has paid for your sins. There is nothing for you to do but believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you the best news you've heard. It doesn't matter what your sin is. It doesn't matter how many sins you piled up in your life. It doesn't matter how guilty you are. It doesn't matter what you've been doing this week. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. It doesn't matter how many skeletons are around in your closet. Scripture says that the devil is there constantly accusing us. Let me tell you, every time he accuses us before the Father, he is 100% right every single time. The, things that, the sins that he's telling God the Father about me, he's right. I'm guilty. I'm guilty every single time. But Jesus is there on the other side of the Father, saying, he's right, but I've already paid the penalty. I've already done the time. 
I've already paid the sacrifice for what he's accusing him of. It's done. It's finished. The case is closed. Whatever it might be that you're struggling with, anger, to tell us die. Lying, to tell us die. Maybe you've got some adultery in your past, to tell us die. Pride, to tell us die. Paid in full. Your debt has been paid. So I ask you this morning, will you turn to Christ and his finished work upon a cross for you? Let's pray. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. If you have any questions or would like to connect with us, please shoot us an email at info at mybethel.cc. 